spending quite a few weeks on this notion of no-self, or as is better described, no separate self. There is, for sure, a self, and that self uh, is a total construction. It is some, it's an idea, it's a concept, it's something that we have invented. And to believe, to believe that it's real, that it has substance, uh, is a delusion. And part of our practice is to, in fact, a good part of our practice is to discover this for ourselves, that this thing that we've taken to be so real and so separate and so substantive is really a mirage. It's something that has been created uh, by us and also by those around us who... It's kind of mutual, mutual construction project. I'll help you construct a self, and you can help me construct myself, and we, and we suffer together because we've done this. <clears throat> One of the consequences, or two of the consequences of the construction of this self, is what Carlos Castaneda talks about as fear and ambition. So if you have a self, if you think you are a separate self, this belief gives rise to fear because you need to protect this this construction knowing fundamentally in some wisdom part of you that this is not real and there are moments when you discover who am I really and all of these constructions these roles that I play and these uh, formalities and labels that I give myself are really empty They're just something that is developed over the course of your life. So some part of us knows, I guess the Buddha part of us knows the truth, that this this self is just a delusion. It's something totally constructed by us. But because of that, we have to protect it. Because at any moment it can fall apart. And then we say, my God, who am I? And having this sense that it can at any moment fall apart, we have to keep keep building a wall around it uh, and maybe inflating it even more and more, which is then ambition. So this, this constructed self gives rise to fear that it may disappear. I would lose my identity. And there are times in our lives when we do feel, I mean, who am I anymore? All the things that I call them the twin towers of our identity, things that will never, ever fall. And then one day, boom, it all falls down. We're afraid of that, very afraid, because then we have to face the groundlessness 
and uh, the, the, the emptiness of who we are. But on the other side of that is the fullness of it, the fact that there, we're connected with everything. But we don't, we don't often go there. We go more to the fear aspect because we hold on so tight to this, this self who we think we are. And because also this, this self is just a construction and can deconstruct at any time, we have ambition. So, oh my God, this part, this part is, is falling away. And no, I have to get, I have to do this, um, I have to achieve this next level. Uh, so I got my BA and now I have to get my MA and now I have to get my PhD or if I'm an assistant professor now I have to become uh, you know, a full professor and, and then I have to publish and then I have to, you know, it's just, we call it the hungry ghost. This self is a hungry ghost. It can never ever be satisfied because it's basically nothing. <laughs> So we just have to keep propping it up. And this is, this is suffering. So fear, ambition. If we discover that, if we let go of this fear and ambition, we have a fighting chance of walking a path with heart. We have a fighting chance of opening ourselves to a way of life which is driven not by fear. Oh, what, what will he say? What will my parents say? What will, how, will I, how will I seem in society? Or, you know, what will happen to me? Will I not be, you know, will I die of starvation? <laughs> I don't know what your fears are. Or, you know... When we, when we let go of the ambition to achieve and achieve and achieve, like I know, remember Donald Trump was asked, once asked, you know, when will enough be enough? And he said, enough isn't in my vocabulary. And I suspect that given our culture, enough isn't in a lot of our vocabularies. That there's always something more we need, something more we need to do, some possession that we need to have that everyone else has that, you know, we have to keep up with. It's just this endless, what Buddha called craving, craving for more and more and more. So this path with heart must be chosen it, it, it might come naturally if we didn't have all these other pressures and all of these other constructions that we engage in. It might come very naturally to us. But we live, in a, we live with, with other egos, with other selves who reinforce our need to continue to, to believe in this delusion. So we have to choose it. We have to find this path with heart. And even when, you know, when we speak about the heart, 
the path with heart. Especially when, when I taught at Penn State, if you talked about the heart, no, um, that's soft, 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 that's hippie. <laughs> She's an old hippie. Um, that's you know this is science. This is the this is the left brain. This is the analytical. We've got to be analytical. We've got to be rational. Um, and heart doesn't come into this. This is all about being rational, being scientific, being objective. So we really have, we have lost this sense of heart. And because we've lost it, we don't really know what to do. Oh, I'm kind of generalizing. I'm using the royal we. And if, if, the, if, if the glove fits, wear it. But if not, ignore it. Um, but maybe I can talk from my own experience because I was myself driven by ambition and fear, but mainly ambition. Even, he, even here, you know, it wasn't just good enough for me to sit. I had to become a transmitted priest. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. And, and now what? You know, I'm very aware. There's no place to go from here. I've sort of reached <laughs> reached the culminating aspect. But now I have to become a great teacher. I have to have lots of students. And, you know. So it's it's endless. So because we don't have that sense of what our heart is telling us to do, so many people, and I'm I. I'm talking today about this because many of our Sangha members are at a place in their lives where they're saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do anymore. Um, I don't know which way to go. Um, And I've been asked this question, what made it, what should I do? And so I've been thinking about this because I want to be able to say something. Um, And so I went online. (laughs) Of course, that's what we do, right? (laughs) To find out what to do. (laughs) And I discovered that there's a book called what would Buddha do? <laughs> and it's 101 answers to life's daily dilemmas. That's the subtitle. <laughs> and you can get it for $4.95 paperback. A dollar ten if it's used. So, boy, what a deal. <laughs> you got 101 answers. <laughs> to life's daily dilemmas. And so I did have a peek inside, because in Amazon, right, you can get a peek inside the book. But before I spent the 495 
so that I could share some of the answers with you. Uh, I looked inside the book. And there are 101 answers to life's daily dilemmas. And here are a few. These are in the question boxes. So, what would Buddha do about killing? There's an answer to that. What would Buddha do to change the world? What would Buddha do when a loved one dies? What would Buddha do about death? What would Buddha do about people who are suffering? What would Buddha do to be happy? And then, what would Buddha do about road rage? (laughs) What would Buddha do when bored? (laughs) What would Buddha do when making a salad? What would Buddha do if his credit cards are maxed out? These are important questions. These are daily dilemmas. 101 of them. What would Buddha do if he couldn't resist having dessert? What would Buddha do if stuck waiting for a flight? What would Buddha do if a cashier gave him too much change. These are, these are all things that, yeah, I mean, daily dilemmas. And what would Buddha do when he's hungry? What do you think Buddha would do when he's hungry? Hmm. I mean, Does it take a book to answer all these questions? We know the answers to all these questions. But somehow we think Buddha knows. This is Buddha. This is the Buddha, but a Buddha free of fear and free of ambition. And what sits between those is your natural wisdom, your heart, your heart heart mind in, in Eastern tradition. This is not a division between the rational and the emotional. It's heart mind. And we've somehow lost the heart part. We're too... We think this is some analytical thing. You know, if Buddha, if Buddha was hungry, he goes to the refrigerator. <laughs> eats. If the teaching is when you're tired, sleep. When you're hungry, eat. But no, we've got to... Our thinking gets in the way. Now, what should I eat? You know, where, am I really hungry? <laughs> yeah. Am I really tired? Maybe, that, maybe I'm deluding. My, it's just that mind kicks in. 
and we start second-guessing second everything. And we've lost that place between fear and ambition that will point us to the way. Sometimes, I've noticed this very recently, I can make a very clear and firm decision as soon as I get up in the morning. Like I was going back and forth for quite a while about whether I was going to go to Japan or not. And there were all kinds of reasons to go and all kinds of reasons not to go. And all kinds of, you know, rationalizations. And and I got up one morning and I'm going to Japan. How did I, how did I, I've been thinking, you know, why was it so clear to me that this is what I was going to do? Because my mind was not burdened by thought. When you get up in the morning, it's like, hello, yes, I'm going to do this, right? If the mind is, I mean, if the mind is clear, so I've noticed that I, I, I'm making decisions very clearly when I get up in the morning. And I know exactly if I allow myself and don't get immediately caught up in my mind kicking in and starting to think. The mind, the rational mind gets in our way. It gets in our way. So... We practice here in order to clear the mind, not to destroy thinking. And I really balk at teachers who claim that we can stop thinking. As long as we have a mind, we we will not stop thinking. But we can prevent ourselves from getting stuck in thinking, allowing our thinking to take us to what I call la-la land. You know, we are, we are so far away from what is actually happening now, here, present, uh, that we just uh, are lost, lost in space. So... When I'm considering what to do, and this occurs in small ways, what do I, what do I have for breakfast? Which brand of toothpaste do I buy at the supermarket? What do I wear today? Uh, do I come to Oan today? Now that's a big decision. So there are small decisions, and then there are what we call big decisions, career choices, whether to marry, whether to divorce, whether to have children, whether to buy a house, um, whether to uh, uh, reconcile with someone we've we've lost contact with or we had a breakup with. I mean, they feel like big decisions. 
what should I do with my life? That's, that's a question that a lot of Sangha members have been asking me. I don't know what to do. I just, I don't, I'm not quite happy with what I'm doing. Uh, I, my heart isn't in it. My heart isn't in it. That's sad. Uh, if, if your heart isn't in it, as Castaneda says, your life will curse you. Your life will be a curse. Uh, so, so it's a good question to ask. Does, does this path have heart? And I don't know what that would mean for you. Um, Buddha outlines a path. It's called the Eightfold Path. Also, we have ten precepts, which are guidelines for a life lived well, a life of heart, a life of joy. This doesn't mean a life of pleasure necessarily. Joy is very different from pleasure. So you can have a quite a joyful life and it be very difficult and, and there may be pain involved. In fact, on this path, there will inevitably be pain. But there are ways to navigate. There are ways to move through suffering. Suffering is inevitable. <clears throat> so these are guidelines for what to do. But ultimately, it really doesn't matter what you do. Uh, Castaneda says, all paths are only paths. Whether you're someone who serves pizza at Domino's, or whether you're a transmitted Dharma priest. The actual substance of what you do is really not important. What's important is how you do it. You know, really, one, comparing one career to another, or, you know, whether you sit without a rock suit or a robe, you know, the substance is what the, what the self wants. But Buddha doesn't care what you do. What should I do, Buddha? Listen to your heart. It's how you do anything you do. Do it with heart. Do it with passion. And that will bring joy to your life. That will be a joyful life. As I've indicated, there, there's, a, there's a sense of the loss of heart in our culture, maybe even in the world. I'm reminded of, of um, is it Julius Caesar, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, where Caesar dies and Brutus, I believe I'm right, says, um, my heart lies there in the coffin, 
with Caesar because they were dear friends. And he says, I must wait until it comes back to me. So, sometimes we have to wait until we can rediscover what our heart is telling us because we've ignored it for so long. We, we have, it's gone. We, we don't, sometimes I'll ask someone, well, what is your heart saying? What, what, what do you mean? <laughs> what does my heart say? I don't, I don't have, I don't connect with that. It's up here that I figure things out. <laughs> this is what my head says. And so, so we may have to wait until our heart comes back to us so that we can rediscover it. And we can discover it, rediscover it as we sit. We can allow that sense of feeling, call it, um, allow it. This is not a head practice. A lot of people think Zen is like a mind thing. It's not. It's a heart thing. But not in the, in the sense of mushy. The heart is very powerful if we allow it to be. So, the what? What do I do? My daughter used to watch this program called Lost in Space. Anybody hear of that? Lost in Space. And every week, it was the same story. This group of people in a spaceship got lost. (laughs) And there were monsters. And the monsters were always terribly threatening to them. And by golly, they managed to defeat the monsters and return home. Exactly the same story. The only thing that was different were the costumes. (laughs) The monsters had different clothing on. And I was just marvel. I, I, I thought to myself, Amy... What are so, what's so compelling about the same story every, every single week? Well, she couldn't tell me because she was too young. But, you know, we all have the same story. Your career as a, a professor, your career as a housewife, your career as a, an, an engineer, your, you know, it's, it's just different costumes, it's just different costumes, but the same story is, is the story of the heart, of, of, of what we are passionate about. And I can remember when I was at Penn State and uh, trying to establish the Center for Sustainability and uh, walking through the halls and feeling such energy and such excitement. And I remember saying to myself, I wasn't Mado at that time. I was Barbara, Dr. Anderson, 
And I remember saying to myself, Barbara, uh, remember how this feels. Remember how this feels because you want to feel like this a lot more. (laughs) And it had nothing to do with the fact that I was a professor or uh, it was something that I was doing that I was doing passionately. And I wanted to remember that feeling because that was the path that would bring me joy. And so I'm inviting you to notice when it's like, wow, I'm, I'm on 10 cylinders here. You know, I'm, I'm pumping, you know, I'm full of life. I'm full of vitality, whether it's in a relationship or, you know, in a career or in some kind of recreational setting. Take note of when that vibration is happening. In many cases in our lives, we have this in the inception of something that we do. We're very excited about, remember when I discovered leaving high school, uh, we never studied philosophy in high school, but then I got to college and we were reading Plato's Republic. And I remember to the day I was at my friend's house and we were doing our homework and it was the first time I opened Plato's Republic and I was on her bed and I started jumping up and down. Oh my God, this is what I've been thinking all the time. You know, I wasn't thinking like Plato, but I was, these were the issues that really uh, were compelling for me. And someone else was writing about this, writing about what's goodness and what's beauty and what's truth. Um, And I was so excited. And I was excited all through college, majoring in philosophy and loving every minute of it. And then when I graduated and uh, got admitted to graduate school, my mentor at, at co- in college said to me, you know, he said, remember how this feels. He said, because from now on, it's going to be a union card. And I never really understood what that meant. It meant let go of your excitement. Now you're joining a union. Now, now it's just about credentials. And so many of us have lost, whether it's in a relationship, in our careers, in our lives, we've lost that original pounding of the heart, that jumping up and down. <laughs> and this is not to say that we've lost it permanently, but... We, we, maybe we have to wait until our heart comes back to us. And that's what Sangha is for. That's what I'm for. For pointing out that this is still there. That heart, that, that, that energy, that heart energy is still there. You just have to find it again. And remember how it feels. Thank you.